after a time of singing and the Lord's Supper and reading scripture and prayer and all that has happened this morning, it feels like almost superfluous for me to get up here now. You can, you can go home. It's been blessing enough, but uh, I believe God has a, a word for us in his word by the power of the Spirit, so we'll do that now. The last few weeks, as we've been looking at the glories of God contained in Ephesians 1, you may have sensed a bit of jarring feeling between what we are reading and your life. Like, we're seeing these incredible truths about what God has done for us, how he chose us and adopted us, and redeemed us, and forgave us, and revealed himself to us. How in Christ, believers are now saints, and faithful, and beloved, and destined to be holy. Like Truly, God has lavished his, the riches of his grace upon him, us, and so we praise him for that. But then we head home, and life is rather mundane or ordinary. We still have to change diapers take out the garbage, navigate family tensions. We still have to get up and go to work the next day or do our schoolwork. We don't feel much like blessed saints. We may even feel like cursed failures at times. And then we look out our windows, and the world around us seems to be on fire. Animosity and fights left and right about vaccines and masks and politics and policies and businesses shutting down, families tearing apart, horrific mass graves discovered, countries in, a, in total upheaval. Think of Afghanistan, or COVID still killing countless worldwide. I believe that the truths of God's word should be like anchors for our ships in the storms of life. However, I also get it that these truths can seem small and insignificant at times in the midst of our day-to-day -day lives and in the face of the dire troubles of our world. Sure, it's great that God says we are so blessed and that he has saved us all the way in the past. And it's wonderful to have redemption and forgiveness in the present. But where are we headed? Like, how do we know that what we go through now is going to be worth it? How do we know that, that God is going to come through for us? How do we know we'll make it? And I believe the answer to these questions comes down to where we place our confidence and trust. We're going to read a passage today with more fantastic, glorious truths that may move you today. And you may be tempted, though, to dismiss them as insignificant or irrelevant as you head home. But I urge you, don't do it. Because this is something we need to cling to in these days. We need to cling to it as we re-enter everyday life. And the key question that you'll need to ask yourself is, will I trust the Lord? Will I trust the Lord? Will you have faith? The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Will you believe that the future is in God's hands? 
and be confident that he's got a plan. For if we put our confidence in our own abilities or goodness or willpower, we are doomed. But if we place our trust in the only one who is able to secure the future, that can actually keep us steady as the world around us seems to crumble. So please, if you will, please turn in a Bible to Ephesians 1 again. Ephesians chapter 1. Last week I said that Ephesians is like us getting shots of the gospel straight into our veins. And afterwards that got me thinking. It's very much like getting booster shots. (laughs) All right, now, regardless of how positively or negatively you see vaccines or booster shots right now, this is the kind of booster shot we can all get behind. All right? If you follow Jesus, see, there are times that his gospel, his good news story of redemption has captured your heart, it's wowed your mind, it's thrilled your soul, and at those times you feel totally immune to the cares or the compromises of this world. Like, Jesus is everything, right? But then, after a time, that passion or excitement wanes. We get distracted or corrupted or bored, and then we become much more vulnerable to the dangers to our faith around us. We need another dose, right? We need a a booster shot. We need our wonder reawakened. And I believe that we likely need this far more frequently than we may think. We need the gospel weekly, daily, even hourly. So, stick your arms out and get a dose of this. (laughs) Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Praise the Lord. (sighs) Paragraph break. In English, at least. (laughs) In the original language, there's no pause here. Paul plows right on ahead into God's plan for us in the future. We've seen hints of this in the verses before, that we'll be holy, that Jesus will reign. But like, what does Christ's eventual universal reign mean for people here and now? And I think we're going to see it means great hope, confidence, expectation, and anticipation. Because... God has secured a bright future for his people in Christ. Okay, God has, our, our Heavenly Father has secured an incredibly bright future for his people who are in Christ. Look with me, verse 11. In him, again, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, pause here. 
there's a, a little detail here that may sound trivial at first. Up till now, in Ephesians, the word we has referred to all believers. But here in verse 11, it actually isn't referring to all believers. It's restricted. See, Paul shifts for two verses to talking specifically about early Jewish believers of Christ. Like the we in verse 11 is the same as in verse 12, where it says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Who were the first to hope in Jesus Christ? His followers in Israel. Why does this matter? Because a major point of this passage and Ephesians as a whole is that God's blessings belong to both Jewish and Gentile believers. Okay, what was once restricted to Jews has been blown open to all peoples across the globe. And here's a, another neat thing about this. See, God giving his people an inheritance is incredible, and we're going to get to that. However, most scholars point out that the English translation here isn't the best. Other versions say we were chosen or that we have become God's inheritance. One scholar says that we were claimed by God as his portion is the most accurate way to translate it. The, the two possible interpretations here are not contradictory, though, and both are true. If our destiny is to be God's prized possession, his treasure for eternity, don't you think that future would be bright? <laughs> and if we are God's inheritance, what do you suppose our inheritance is? To belong to him. Right? So our inheritance is to be God's inheritance. There is no real difference. But being claimed as God's portion meant something hugely significant to the people of Israel. In the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, it says this, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But... The Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. In other words, it's kind of like God handed out various nations, perhaps to angels or beings like them, we're not sure. But then he said, but Israel's mine. Israel's mine. He kept them as his own chosen personal possession, as his inheritance forever. And now Paul comes along and says, that has happened that has been fulfilled through Jesus. Jesus is the one that made it happen. It says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. Like Jesus made it possible for people to be reconciled to God and restored as his chosen people. In him, God can claim us and rightfully say again, you're mine. And although Paul's directly referring to Jewish believers first, the same is now true for all of us who believe in Jesus. When we think of receiving an inheritance, we think of what we receive when someone dies. Right? Like if your parent or grandparent passes away and, and leaves you something in their will. So to, to Johnny, I bequeath my decorative spoon collection. <laughs> Thanks, Grandma. 
That's not what my grandma did, by the way. <laughs> or better, like, to, to Vicky, I leave the house. Right? Or, or my whole estate, even. Like, inheritances can be really nice gifts, except that they're usually tinged with grief because they're associated with someone dying. But think about it. Does an inheritance have to necessarily be associated with death? No. Like someone could choose to give out an inheritance at any time as a gift. Like, I've set aside this for you in my will, but I'd like to give you your inheritance early. I think you could use it now. So really, what an inheritance is, is just something we do not own yet, but is destined to be ours. It's not something we have an automatic right to at all. Right? That the person giving the inheritance decides what to give and when to give it. And in the case of being God's inheritance or obtaining an inheritance from him, it's, it's total grace. Like It's given to us when he wants to give it to us. And he absolutely doesn't need to die first, even though Jesus did die to secure it. And even though we may not receive it in full until we die, kind of reversed. Brian Chappell explains that God's love is based on something in his heart rather than on anything that we would achieve or claim for ourselves. Just as an heir does not inherit because of what he has gained, but because of what his father gives. In our sin, we gave up our place in God's affections and love. Or like the prodigal son, we got it and we spent it all away. We lost it. But God's plan was to reclaim us and give us a hope and a future that will blow our minds. Maybe you have a hard time believing that because you can't picture it. How do we know that what God has in store will actually be so great? Well, let's picture it this way. Picture what you do possess right now in your minds, okay, in this world. Think of your family members that you love. Think of your friends. Think of the, the balance in your bank account or your investments. Think of your home or your property if you own it. Think of all your possessions, your, your vehicles, your bikes, your phones, your toys, etc. All that you own, okay? Picture that in your mind. How would you feel if someone gave you a gift that doubled all that you have? Pretty great. Okay, what, what if you had triple the amount of loved ones that you really cared about? What if your wealth quadrupled overnight? You know what Jesus promises his people, especially those who sacrifice for him now? says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And this is how God gives. This is God's generosity. Like a hundredfold eternal life. Abundant generosity. Like you, could have, you could lose everything now 
and gain so much more in the end. That's how God gives. And this plan for his people's future, we see in Ephesians 1, was God's plan all along. In verse 11 again, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Notice that we have obtained is past tense. We may not have access to it all yet, but the, inher- and the inheritance has already been promised and secured for us. It's so secured that Paul can rightly say that God's people were predestined for this. Predestined. We have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. It's thanks to God's will, his desire, that we have a glorious future. This is what he wanted. There's no reason that we deserve to receive anything from God but his wrath. Did Israel's record show any reason for God to love and save them? No. They seem to go in cycles of of rebellion and idolatry and apostasy. And yet in his love, God predestined sinful people to become his holy people. This is what he wanted to do. It would never happen otherwise. Paul says that God works all things according to or in conformity to the counsel of his will. So whatever he plans and decides to do will come to pass, guaranteed. And you think he can handle saving you? <laughs> Securing your future, he works all things. <laughs> A few weeks ago, we addressed some of the objections people have to predestination. And we assume that this idea takes away our free will or makes God deterministic. But does this say that we've been predestined against our will? No. Our wills are not canceled out. But the thing is, if it were left up to us and our will, we would never choose God. We want to live our own way and work things according to our will. So... Thank God that he had other plans for us. Predestination is never seen in Scripture as something to to dislike or object to or worry about. It's something to humbly rejoice about, to, to thank and praise God for. That's the, the clear purpose and goal behind all these plans of God's we see here. Look again, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So praise God, in other words. He eternally blessed his people by having Christ secure an inheritance for them so that they might be, that they would live and exist to the praise of his glory. If your hope is in Christ today, are you living and existing for his glory? I hope so. Now, you might hear these verses, and almost all of us here today could say, I'm not Jewish. Or, 
all of us could say, I also wasn't one of the first to hope in Christ. So, how do I know this applies to me? Does it? Is, is this our purpose as well, to, to praise God in His glory? Is this our destiny as well, to be one of God's people, to receive an inheritance from Him? Yes, it is. Depending on our response to Jesus. See, if you believe in Jesus, then all of this that he's talking about is incredibly yours. Look at verse 13. It says, In him you also, speaking to the Ephesians now, and by extension, all Gentile believers, all non-Jewish believers, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now this, verse 13 especially, tells us how God makes us his people. It may sound simple, but it's glorious. See, God has secured a bright future for his people in Christ, given through the gospel. The bright future God has for his people in Christ is given to us through the gospel of Christ. Pastor Ray Ortland once gave his church, Emmanuel Nashville, a mantra to live by, which, which summarized the gospel's invitation in a, in a creative, simple way. It went like this. Number one, I'm a complete idiot. <laughs> Two, my future is incredibly bright. And three, anyone can get in on this. <laughs> it's pretty good. Because I don't know about you, but I am a complete idiot. <laughs> I don't deserve anything from God. I come from a long line of sinful idiots. Right? How many times have I willfully turned my back on God's ways? How many times, how often have I stupidly lashed out or lusted or lied? How many things have I clearly loved more than I love the Lord? How much have I massively screwed up my own future? And yet, despite my sinful idiocy, my future is incredibly bright. Thanks to Jesus. Because, because Jesus came to earth and lived the sinless holy life I should have lived. And then he died in my place, the death I should have died. And then he rose from the dead, conquering death and offering life eternal. <laughs> like we read earlier here, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And as we've seen today, as God's child, I can obtain a glorious inheritance to God's glory. And if I can get in on this, anyone can get in on this. 
That's the message of verse 13, that Jesus isn't only for Jews or early Christians. He's for anyone who hears and responds to the gospel, the good news of Jesus. In, it says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Like, there are no second-class members in the community of God's people. And you may be here today and, and hearing this message for the first time. Or maybe you've heard it before. But for the first time, you're really hearing it. Hey, listen, you can get in on this. Hey, Jesus didn't die for good, righteous people who have it all together. Jesus died to save sinners like you and me who really need him to save us. <laughs> and that's good news. That's what the word gospel there means, good news. And this gospel is good news for your past. It can all be forgiven. It's good news for your present. It can give life now a, a truly glorious purpose to live for. And it's good news for your future. It can be brilliantly bright. So I hope you'll hear this today and choose to say, like, I believe this is true. I believe that, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that I need him. Trust him to forgive you, to change you, and save you, and he will. That's having faith. And our faith is what he's after. Don't know if you noticed, it's the only part that we play in our salvation. If you notice that verse 13 is the first place in this entire long passage, going all the way back to verse 3, that an action of ours is mentioned. This is our response to all that God has done. He blesses, he chooses, he loves, he predestines, he adopts, he wills, he graces, he redeems, he sheds his blood, he forgives, he lavishes grace, he is wise, he reveals his will and purpose, he sets forth his plans, he unites all things in Christ, he gives an inheritance, he works all things according to the counsel of his will, we hear and we believe. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, and that's when we receive salvation. If you're here today and you believe in Jesus, it is the greatest thing that will ever happen to you. And if you do so or you need help doing so, we would love to hear from you or to help you, talk with you. This is a world-changing word of truth. And this glorious gospel can be true of you today. For those of us it already is true of, I hope this gives you your booster shot. <laughs> In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And in case you didn't notice that yet, this salvation is totally guaranteed. 100% effective. We can know with certainty 
that our future is eternally bright. How so? Because as soon as we truly believe, it says we're sealed. You've been sealed. When you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The point, God has secured a bright future for his people in Christ, which is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. Okay, the bright future God has secured for us in Christ is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. Like, even though our response is described here, the focus of these verses is on the Holy Spirit. Notice, if we take out the explanatory phrases between commas, we get this. In him, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He's the focus. And so the Holy Spirit's role in our salvation is to seal us. When you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The image of being sealed can refer to two things, both of which could be in view here. First, the public authorities in Paul's day would often affix their seal to official documents. So they would drop a glob of wax onto the paper and then stamp their seal in the wax. And then what did this do? It declared that whatever this document proclaimed or promised was set forth under this person's authority and thus guaranteed by them. Second, a different kind of seal was used by livestock owners or slave masters. And they would brand their animals or their slaves with their personal seal, their signal, if you would, or symbol. And this told everyone permanently who they belonged to. It also showed who they were protected by, because owners would protect their possessions. For us to be sealed by the Holy Spirit, then, is to say one way or the other that God has marked us. God has put his seal on us. He has identified us as his own. We belong to him. He will protect us to the end, and he guarantees it. How do we know or tell if we're sealed? We have the Holy Spirit. He's the seal. Well, here's a problem. Might be confused about the Spirit or not know if we have the Spirit. A recent study found out that self, out of self-identified Christians in America, 58% do not believe that the Holy Spirit is a real living being, but is merely a symbol of God's power, presence, or purity. I doubt Canada is any different. A friend of mine commented, in other words, a majority of self-identified Christians are not Christians. Or at the very least, we badly misunderstand the nature of God. Since it's too big of a, a topic to cover in, in one setting today, and we won't likely grasp the full extent of how the Trinity works, but we can affirm, or we should affirm, what the Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit. That He is God. That He is a person. One of the three persons in the Godhead. He's not just a symbol He's not just uh, some spiritual power like the force in Star Wars. That's how a lot of people picture him. The Spirit is God sent from God to live in and empower our new life in Christ. 
And every true believer in Christ has the Holy Spirit living inside of them. Michael Reeves explains, When the Spirit is thought of as a force and not a person, it gives the impression of God up in heaven lobbing down tokens of his blessing, the force, while himself remaining all distant. And if that is how it is, then I can hardly have communion with this force or with the Father or the Son. The Spirit must be a power I am to get hold of and use as I get on with my life. Some do magic. Others have money and the latest beauty products. I use the Spirit. And if I manage to use the Spirit more than other Christians, hurrah for spiritual me. How different to know that the Spirit is as real a person as Jesus Christ and that he comes to live in me. That changes everything. That changes everything about the way that we fight sin and repent. It changes everything about the way we have faith and trust despite our circumstances. It changes everything about the way we worship and commune with God now. Thank the Lord that the real, personal, divine Holy Spirit dwells with us. How can we tell if this is true of us? You might feel that you don't sense the Spirit very often. And I would say, don't look for a mystical feeling or some magical giftings. Look for the tangible fruit of the Spirit that He inevitably bears in our lives. You know them well. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. It's not that we'll be automatically perfect in all these qualities. No way. Like, just like fruit, slowly blossoms and develops and ripens on plants, so the fruit of the Spirit blossoms and develops and ripens in our hearts and lives. But if your heart has changed since you met Christ, like if you've been developing these qualities in a way that would be unexplainable outside of God's influence in you, then you've got the Spirit. Also, even prior to any fruit growing, we can be sure we have the Spirit if we have true faith. In this passage, it appears that belief itself is the proof of the presence of the Spirit. After all, we would never believe. We could never believe without Him. The world definitely doesn't believe, and neither could we until He changes our hearts. Like Faith, it's nothing short of supernatural, and we so easily forget that. And so, if the Holy Spirit has enabled you to taste the goodness of the gospel, he is giving you a foretaste of the glory that is to come. And your believing in Christ is the evidence that the Spirit is inside of you. And when we have the Spirit, we have assurance that God has sealed us for a glorious future. Look how verse 14 puts it. 
as the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The word for guarantee there can also be translated as deposit or even down payment. When my wife and I bought the house we live in, we had to make a lump payment up front, a down payment, right? a percentage of the full cost of the home, which was due right away. And this told the bank that was giving us a mortgage that we were good for paying the rest of it. Right? It was our personal guarantee that we will keep paying until we own the house. If the Holy Spirit is God's down payment, it means that the Spirit is His guarantee that He is good for seeing us through to the end. We can count on it. But the Spirit is specifically, it says, a a deposit from our inheritance. A first installment, if you will. So, He's a guarantee that we will eventually receive the full inheritance. As Brian Chappell says, the Spirit is the first evidence of the full grandeur of God's completed purpose in our lives. And it's not just a promise, it's a foretaste. And this isn't some measly 20% down payment either. This is God giving us himself. Even though what we know now pales in comparison to what we'll experience then. It's still God giving us himself. Kent Hughes describes, it is a true foretaste. Imagine the sublimest, most treasured experiences of the Holy Spirit we have ever had, and then realize they are only a foretaste, the tip of the tongue on the spoon of what is to come. Remember the release in coming to Christ and knowing you were forgiven? Remember the time when in worship you were smitten with awe? Remember the time you followed the Spirit's leading and were wonderfully used? Remember the satisfaction of finding the fruits of the Spirit surprising you with goodness where you once responded wickedly? Think of all this and then multiply it a millionfold. Here on earth, we have experienced the first dollar of a million celestial dollars, the earnest. We have the dawning of knowledge, but then we will have the midday sun. We have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So do you have the Holy Spirit living in you today? If so, rejoice. You have God's personal guarantee that your future is incredibly bright. And this reality doesn't just give us hope in a world full of hopelessness. This also gives us a great purpose, eternal purpose for which to live our lives. Look how this long sentence finally comes to an end. It says, you're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's the third time Paul says this in one sentence. Think he's trying to tell us something? Indeed, God has secured a bright future for his people in Christ so that we will live for his glory. This is our God-given purpose, both now and forever, to live for the praise of his glory. We've been loved by the Father, verse 3 to 6, to the praise 
of his glorious grace. We have been redeemed by the Son, verse 7 to 12, that we might be to the praise of his glory. And we have been sealed by the Spirit, verse 13 to 14, to the praise of his glory. What are you living for today? Does it hold a candle to this kind of life purpose? Really ask yourself, what or who am I living for? What do your actions say? What is the way you spend your time or your money or your words say? What do you marvel at most in life? This is why God loves, saves, and secures you that your life would praise his glory. So does it. And what would need to change in order to show a watching world whom you love most? That is, if you do love God most. And maybe there's a sin to forsake, a good habit to reinstate, a priority to shift. If the Spirit of God inside you brings something to mind in this moment, do not dismiss it, because he is real and alive and active in our hearts. And living for him should not be a burden. It should be our, our greatest privilege and joy. He's trying to lead us into life that is flourishing. Like when we see God's plans for the universe and how they amazingly include us, we can rest assured that any efforts we do now for the Lord are not futile. And we can rest assured that not even our shortcomings will derail his plans. God is still in the business of using people like you and me to display his glory. And yes, we will return home today to lives that seem rather ordinary in a world that is very broken. But those of us in Christ go with the God of the universe living inside of us. That's no longer ordinary. And when we have the Holy Spirit inside of us, we have a sure hope for the future, no matter how broken the present is. It's like we've gone up in a plane and been lifted above the clouds of the storms below. And we can see the glory of God's plan from up here. We can see where we're headed can see that the storms will pass. can see that it will be worth it all. That we, we can trust that God is going to come through and that we are going to make it because he lives in us and he works all things according to the counsel of his will. In this glorious passage, we get really a life-altering glimpse of heaven's perspective on our lives. Listen to how Brian Chappell concludes here. It says, we question and doubt God's design because the things of earth get in the way. Our troubles, our questions, our sin, yes, even our pain and suffering. 
Because our weakness before the world outside of us and our sin caused by the world inside of us are so evident, we need the blessed assurance that our lives are not fruitless and that what we fail to achieve is not disqualifying of God's love. Ultimately, our confidence has to turn away from anything that we would offer and instead toward the faithfulness of our God that is confirmed by His Spirit's work in us. And catch this, the universe of your soul is already different. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. He is the deposit of God of the full redemption that is ahead, given to assure you that what you face is not without purpose and what you most cherish is not in jeopardy. God's given us purpose. For every day, every situation, every trial, every joy, it's all to the praise of His glory. We are to the praise of His glory. And this glory is guaranteed. Our future is incredibly bright. Praise the Lord. Heavenly Father, please open our eyes. Please draw us to yourself now. May your glory be the drumbeat of our lives. What can we give you in return? We want our faith. We want our hearts. So we pray that each one of us offers that to you now in these moments. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.